Welcome to Overdrive, a program that proudly gives you the alternative facts to all aspects of motoring and transport. I'm Errol Smith, and in this program we look at news stories including Ford's replacement for the Territory SUV, the lifespan of the new Holden Commodore, China's takeover of a flying car company, Uber's big investment and plans for flying cars in LA, and the new McLaren road legal rocket. And in our panel discussion with David Brown, we take a light-hearted look at stories including choosing the sound of your otherwise quiet electric car, what whiskey has to do with bicycle frames, and a bear goes for a drive in Colorado. Have a question or comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now to begin the program, let's have the news. Ford Australia has announced that its homegrown territory SUV will be replaced next year by the Endura. The vehicle is known in other markets as the Edge. The confirmation of Endura short for Endurance, follows a protracted legal battle with Toyota Australia, which holds the naming rights to the Edge, which was Ford's preferred choice. The Endura will most likely be imported from Canada. Australia's Endura is likely to be similar in specification to the model sold in the UK, where the right-hand drive Edge is available exclusively as a five-seat diesel. The Endura will feature Ford's intelligent all-wheel drive technology as standard that seamlessly transitions from front-wheel drive to all-wheel drive. The new SUV will join the small Echo Sport, the mid-size Escape and the large Everest off-roader in Ford's SUV range. Overdrive recently reported that the next-generation Holden Commodore will be a rebadged Opel Insignia which has been nominated for the 2018 Car of the Year. However, Holden's first imported Commodore may have a maximum lifespan of just six years, much shorter than any previous generation to wear the famous badge. This is because earlier this year, GM sold Opel and Vauxhall to the PSA Group, the parent of Peugeot and Citroën. At the time, both sides said Commodore and Astra Supply would be guaranteed as long as the cars were continued to be built on GM platforms. But PSA is now intending to move Opel models over to Peugeot and Citroen Group architectures faster than originally planned. The transition will now be completed for all models by 2024. Theoretically, GM could elect to continue paying PSA to supply models to Holden after the architecture swaps, but that would seem a particularly expensive choice. Time will tell how this all plays out. China's Geely Motor Group has been on the acquisition trail over recent years, buying companies such as Volvo, Lotus and Proton. Now the company has announced that it has taken over US-based TerraFuja, which has made headlines for developing flying cars for many years, but not yet selling any. TerraFuja had aimed to bring a flying car to market in 2019, which is a fantastically long development period for a company which was founded in 2006. 
It's also planning to bring a vertical takeoff and landing car to market by 2021. With a 320km per hour top speed and a total range of 800km, the TFX3 is expected to cost $400,000. The Geely Terrafugia Venture will rival a host of similar vertical takeoff and landing vehicles coming soon from companies such as the Daimler-backed Velocopter, Toyota, Airbus, Uber, and Google. When you think of flying cars, you might picture something out of Back to the Future or the Fifth Element. They may have an air of sci-fi about them, but according to Uber, it won't be long before they become a reality. In fact, they could be in the sky by 2020. Uber has announced plans to introduce a pay-as-you-go flying car service called Uber Elevate. The company recently announced that it was adding Los Angeles to its list of test cities, along with Dubai and Dallas. Uber also announced that it has joined up with NASA to develop an air traffic control system to manage these potentially autonomous taxis. The agreements mean the two companies will be able to trade technology and knowledge. Both Sydney and Melbourne are also being investigated as potential test cities, but there has been no official announcement on this yet. Australia's Civil Aviation and Safety Authority confirmed it was ready to meet the challenges involved in regulating airspace for new flying vehicles. And still with Uber, Japanese technology conglomerate SoftBank has reached a deal with Uber to invest billions of dollars in the ride-sharing company. It has been reported that the SoftBank group will buy about $1.45 billion worth of new Uber stock then offer to purchase shares from investors and Uber employees, with the goal of reaching a 14% stake in the company. The move also clears the way for Uber, among the most valuable tech firms in the world, to sell stock to the public. Under the deal, the initial public offering will take place before the end of 2019. Uber is currently valued at nearly $100 billion. McLaren has announced that its next new model, currently codenamed P15, will be revealed before Christmas. Confirmed at the Dubai International Motor Show, McLaren's forthcoming model will be revealed online on December the 10th, ahead of its first public outing at the Geneva International Motor Show in March next year. The P15 production car will be the latest addition to McLaren's Ultimate Series, positioned above their core Super Series, like the 720S. Currently, the Ultimate Series comprises only two models, the P1 and the P1 GTR. However, unlike the P1 models, early reports suggest that the P15 will not be powered by hybrid technology and instead will be powered solely by a turbocharged V8 based on the 4-litre unit in the 720S. According to McLaren, the P15 has been designed as the most extreme road-legal McLaren ever. It's expected that McLaren will build 500 P15 road cars, all of which are said to be pre-sold or allocated to customers. You're listening to Overdrive. This week I've been in Adelaide at a conference on autonomous vehicles. There are a lot of presentations, some of them rather dry, about the technology of autonomous vehicles, the regulations needed to run trials and legal aspects of this new type of vehicle. 
But one of the biggest need for regulation, in my opinion, is in the area of town planning. Many governments will break down the barriers to testing and then permitting autonomous vehicles because they want the jobs and technical expertise to be in their jurisdictions. But problems could arise when autonomous vehicles lead to greater congestion and poor planning outcomes. Brian Haratsis, the Executive Director of Macroplan Australia, was at the conference. He has just written a book called Autropolis, How and When Autonomous Vehicles Will Transform Australia and Why It Matters. I caught up with him during one of the breaks. Macro plan, what do they do? We're economists and planners and, and, and we look at the future of cities and we, we look at the feasibility studies for major projects. There's a big push, of course, to provide private funding uh, to these things, but the private market has profitability as its key measure, whereas government might really have uh, a community benefit. Is there a disparity there or is there a danger there? There's a huge disjunction. The problem is this, and that is the business case for uh, driverless vehicles, automated vehicles, the business case is actually to enable uh, middle class, upper middle class, wealthier people with money to be able to have a much more comfortable journey home on a freeway. That's the actual business case. Now, if that's the business case, how do we translate that into into a, a better business case for all of our lifestyles? And the problem there is that the uh, OEMs are actually driving uh, a good technology agenda. They're way in front of regulation. And what will happen is that we will have more vehicles on the road. So we're going to move from excessive congestion, which is the new concept, not just congestion, excessive congestion into, into red line congestion. And, and in the absence of a broader approach to diverse mobility, in other words, many different travel modes, uh, Australia confronts uh, quite significant problems. The problem has been that if the private industry provides money, we tend to give them a little bit of a free hand to try to encourage them, which can bring about policies that are actually against equity, for example. This could happen with new technology? Look, it could. It's not so much a free hand. It is interesting. The way that conceptually what's happened in, in uh, the mobility game is that the, the public sector, the regulators are trying to get out of the way so that automated vehicles can actually become effective on Australian roads. And the thinking is if, that, if that's done early, then what will happen is Australia can benefit early. Now, now the problem with just getting out of the way is, is it will result in massive traffic congestion. Let me give you another interesting stat. In LA at the moment, sorry, San Francisco, there's 9% reduction in the use of public transport because that's been mode shift from public transport to rideshare. And so, of course, we couldn't sustain that in Australia because we don't have enough density as it, as it runs at the moment. We, couldn't, we really can't afford to have our public transport impacted by AV and ride-sharing. So we need to manage the introduction to maximise the, the use of, of trunk public transport. A very different set of approaches is required in Australia to most of the rest of the world. Manage. What do you mean? Very strong government policy. Is that is that the way you would see the management of it? Um, I would see uh, strong would be a good word, but but comprehensive may be a better word. And by comprehensive, I mean setting objectives. And a good example would be in in the future we'll have mobility as a service platforms, and those mobility as a service platforms. And what that means for the for, is that when you wake up in the morning. Um, you press your app and you, you're looking for the healthy 
the healthy option to get to work today so I can walk for five kilometres before I get the train, before I get the e-bike or before I get picked up by the AV. So in other words, this new platform technology. Now the problem with that is that if you thought about the, the platform technologies in the world, Amazon, Google, so you end up with um, our, our mobility being controlled as a platform internationally. You can imagine what's going to be pushed down the pipes through there, advertising, marketing, etc. So we need to break down the concept of a platform technology so that government needs to be able to say, if you want access to our data, for example, our public transport data, if you want that, and our, and our collision data, there are certain community service obligations that we require of you. In other words, there needs to be welfare access, there needs to be broadly based access and there needs to be specific um, projects and programs for disabled and for uh, people with, 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 with low levels of access. Because what will happen is we'll end up with a, just a, a huge middle class subsidy as a middle class buy AVs to in, in effect get around the problem of congestion. Might there be issues where the healthy option has a price incentive? Uh, is is that part of it? Well, well it should be. Um, I'm absolutely opposed to con congestion charging on the basis that if you if you charge for traffic congestion, it essentially just ensures that low-income people don't get to use the roads often when they'd like to. I'm in favour of mobility allowances. And so, in other words, every year a federal government might, say, for example, make $5,000 per household available. That's, the, that's what people normally would spend on a motor vehicle. And you can spend it on no transport. You can, you can take the money, put it in your pocket, or you can use it for congestion charging. Or, in other words, we need to completely transform the way we think about mobility because the fundamental nature of mobility is connection to services, it, connection to jobs, in other words, income, income support and, and your future ability to participate in society is controlled by mobility. If you don't have a phone and you don't have a good motor vehicle, you'll be living on some kind of urban fringe and you'll be poverty stricken. There's a way of providing access to that or providing the opportunities nearby, city of cities, you know, not just one CBD. That's part of the, the broad plan, you would think? So the broad, yes, the broad plan is to be able to, is to have a lot more nodal points. And so the, it could ultimately, and it would have to ultimately be more polycentricity. So a good example of that would be the new Sydney plan where there's proposed to be three CBDs because, because you cannot, you simply cannot control you, the congestion with a single CBD. But the market suggests that you, if you are using a resource, you really should pay for it. So the carbon tax brought in a tax but subsidised low-income workers. Is there still a recognition that there is going to have to be a cost uh, a penalty or a cost reality for using any sort of transport system? Oh, absolutely. So what would happen is the mobility allowance would actually be funded by, it would be similar to a Medicare, it would be 1% on all income earners to pay for this mobility allowance. The big beneficiaries would be the lowest income because the $5,000 that that low income household, of course, gets every year is very highly valued. And their propensity to take that $5,000, for example, and not to buy a car, but to take public transport or to walk every second day to save that money is huge. So it's thinking through much more broadly based policies, which, which facilitate mobility and improve equity over time. That, that's where we should, that's where we need to go as a, as a society.
One of the systems of autonomous vehicles, autonomous buses, means the running cost can be lower and we could perhaps run more regular services. Not door-to-door, -door, but a more network-wide service. Would you see that as a positive way to having access to a broader range of activities? Absolutely. I think the, that's the biggest immediate benefit that AV can bring, which would be a very, a very large network of shuttles, mm. which which actually included walking. So it's not so much going directly to the taxi bot or the robot, robot vehicle, because the biggest issue with that is the distance that people walk will begin to reduce. And we have evidence. In Melbourne, when the trams were made free, the use of the free bicycles dropped dramatically. So you see, price is important. Mm. And, so, and so with, with AV, so long as you can get to it and so long as the pricing of the AV is good, and it would be because they're relatively low cost, because not only, uh, not only is there no driver, but the cost of an EV over time, that typically they can do four times the miles per maintenance uh, kilometre. Mm. So we're talking about very inexpensive methods of movement here. Mm. Um, and I would suggest to you that combining walking cycling, e-bike, shuttle, connection to uh, trunk public transport is, as we understand it now, the best way to, to achieve the mobility outcomes for everybody. Or it might be uh, Amazon in order to work with its own suppliers of groceries because they're starting to dominate not just transport but the, you know that whole market. So if I was an independent selling organic food in the you know, regional area... Amazon might not want me for a number of reasons. Well, well that's exactly right, they, and they, they probably won't. But, but if you're in an urban area, a good example is um, a, a large uh, owner of shopping centres might want you. And so if you take their automated vehicle to their shopping centre, yes. you don't pay. And so we, where we need to get to quickly is, is to realise that broad spectrum of opportunity so we cut the surge price out. We, 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 we create real incentive for uh, higher levels of mobility but, but at lower costs. And in fact, there might be an economic push like your Melbourne city centre where businesses have their own shuttle buses or whatever that might get out to you know, regional areas and link up with others simply because they don't want to be affected by surge pricing or they don't want their customers to be affected by surge pricing. Well, that's exactly right. And so on, with mobility as a service, the, the simplest way that the, the, the deals with this is you simply hit your shopping centre button. It actually gives you the barcode. You hop in, you hop in the, whether it's a, a Lyft, an Uber, a GoGet, and the bar, it barcodes, and it's actually paid for by the the shopping centre, who have got a deal and they probably only pay half of what you would have paid because they're a bulk, a bulk user. So these, this, there are opportunities for major virtuous cycle, but we are not currently thinking that way. We're thinking about just getting regulation out of the way instead of that social, environmental and economic opportunity that sits there. Thanks very much. No worries. Thank you. This is Overdrive across Australia. And so we come to the end of the program and we talk some quirky news. Joining me on the line is Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. Now, Nissan has a car, it's an electric car, and as required, will be required if the law goes through in two years' time that uh, in America that 
an electric car must emit a sound when it's travelling relatively slowly, I think around 12 to 19 miles per hour, depending on which jurisdiction you're in. The point being is that uh, people who are deaf and uh, are unaware of car is there because it's not making any noise, so at a slow speed it should. At a higher speed it make noise from the tyres. Errol, would you suggest that this is a good idea? Well, it's certainly a good idea from a safety point of view, um, but I think they're taking away the fun aspect. I, I want to be able to sneak up on pedestrians and have it <laughs> shout boo. <laughs> I had a pedestrian using their mobile phone just walk straight out onto the road. It wasn't a big wide road, but nonetheless, and I tooted the horn. And I've got to admit that I needed to toot that horn. There was something psychologically within within you that said, yeah. I, I was so right and you were so wrong, I needed justification. And she looked as if to say, oh, well, yeah, that happens. I, you know, of course, what I wanted her to do was to be totally apologetic and mm. say, you're a good man for not hitting me. Yes. Well, one, one of the things I appreciate about my, my ageing car, David, is has a really good horn. Ah. which we often don't find on, on newer vehicles. And uh, you can sort of give someone a good startle if they're not paying attention. So what's the noise that Nissan might uh, produce? They claim that it sings. So it's uh, something like this. A bit futuristic, really. Are, are there other possibilities, like a, a gentle piece of music, a bit of uh, serious music, classical music, or doof doof noises to try and highlight the fact that danger is near? It, yeah. Well, what I want, um, I want to know what's the the best sound the car could make for get the hell out of my way. Um, okay. Maybe it could play some death metal or something like that. Hmm. Um, I, I think it, the, the sound it makes should change depending on how aggressively you're driving. Oh, okay. If you're just coasting along, it, it should make a nice, you know, subtle, relaxing sound like that. But uh, if you're hooning, it should, you know, sound like an F1 engine. The other thing is the car will know where you're looking. So if you're not looking ahead, perhaps it should make an even more aggressive noise. <laughs> but the driver is, <laughs> you're in the way, you're about to get hit, and the driver doesn't know a thing about it. Yes, Yes. Oh, the other one is the noise it could make would be the screech of brakes. What, even though you're not stopping? Yeah. <laughs> give, people a, give people an indication that you're coming and they should pay attention. Yes. The, the other thing is if you had gentle music like uh, royal, uh, like uh, classical music, the more upper-class cars could afford to pay more royalty. So <laughs> it would be a way of reinforcing your social status. Mm. But uh, just as long as they don't put uh, green sleeves on there, because, you know, you'll just have all the kids will be running out when if you drive down the street thinking there's some ice cream. That raises the point, Errol, of advertising, because it could come out. Uh, please get out of the way, brought to you by, I don't know, Nike or something. Oh, uh, yes, yes. I, I think that's a that's a slippery slope, David, and I, I think uh, I'm sure there's someone somewhere who's um, trying to sell that idea right now. Helping protect you in the community. <laughs> Let's get on to things to do with alcohol. Yeah, well, David, Glenmorangie may be known for its scotch, but soon it might also be known for its cycles. The wood from uh, Glenmorangie's whiskey cast is being used to make handcrafted bicycle frames by US firm Renovo. And it's interesting that the wood 
that they're using actually goes all the way around the world. The casks are made from American oak. They're used in Scotland, and they only use them twice. Otherwise, there's too much flavour lost from the wood. Then they sent them back to the US, and where they get turned in, uh, where they get used in Oregon, the place, not the wood. <laughs> Does it emit a odour of a? smell from what it's been used for well apparently it smells absolutely beautiful when it's being made but unfortunately by the time they sort of seal the wood up and finish it it's mostly mostly gone what happens when it rains well apparently it's you know it's you know sealed and waterproof and whatever i I was wondering though what's it like to ride a single malt (laughs) Uh, does it then come from I don't know. Is there a status of what your vehicle is made out of? Is mm. there a trend here? Well, obviously, the, the price will depend on how old the wood was. So, you know, the 18-year-old the single malt wood frame will be far, you know, far rarer and more expensive than the, than the boring three-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been matured longer. But are there other materials, like this bicycle's been made out of the frame that was around the Mona Lisa or something? You know, I don't see the value in it other than uh, pretentious, conspicuous consumption. Yes. Well, I guess they're recycling in one way, shape or form. <laughs> <they? Boom>, <laughs> oh, that's appalling. Really good. <laughs> All right. Well, let's just finish uh, with this other uh, story. In Colorado, in Durango, there's a resident there by Ron Cornelius. He awoke to find his Subaru SUV had crashed at the bottom of the hill at the end of his driveway. Now, the reason was that two or three bears got stuck in, or get stuck in cars each uh, week in the, the area. But what happened was the bear got in there, scratching and searching for food. It uh, found that it actually had leaned to open the door handles but it added for the first time that they had really the bear had attempted to drive off with the car <laughs> well it's interesting that the bears have actually apparently learnt to open the car doors hmm. uh, so and, and apparently this is all because some of the um their natural food sources sort of died off due to some some bad weather so uh they're all sort of you know digging through people's cars so people are being encouraged not to leave any food in their car and make sure their car's locked the back window had been uh, shattered the radio was ripped out so clearly he was a thief who knew what he was doing the steering wheel was pulled off completely uh what's the name of yogi bear's nemesis the park ranger oh yeah it escapes me but uh yeah well yeah, he, yeah. He's, he's he's who you want to call well, you don't want the bear to say that, you know, or, you know, get out before Mr. Whoever it was. Mm. Ranger Smith. Oh, of course. Now there you are. It's I, you. I, I should have known. <laughs> <laughs> ah, all right, Errol. Lovely to talk to you. We'll see you next time. No worries, David. Thanks a lot. And that's Errol Smith. And this has been Quirky News on Overdrive. This has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Brown and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to past programs and longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au 
or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm Errol Smith. Thanks for listening.